0: Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Lord, God of heaven, We're thankful to have another word here tonight. We pray that the word as it is preached would be especially blessed. That the minister of God would be able to preach by the Spirit's power. Only the Spirit uh, can be of any help to us tonight. So give us the Spirit. And make this time be such that Christ would be knocking on the door. And that we would open to him, our beloved. We would answer. And where we have need of repentance, we would see that his love is there in the rebuke. And we would turn to him. Uh, And we would hear the voice of our beloved and open the door. We pray that any here who may tonight not know the Savior would open that door. That the Spirit would open the door of their heart, unlatching it, so that uh, he may come in. We pray that this time would be full of uh, Christ that we would have our eyes open to the loveliness of Christ and our wretchedness apart from Him. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we continue our series through the seven churches of the Revelation, and we have remembered time and again that these seven churches are representative of the Church Catholic, of the Church Universal given so that we may test ourselves, our congregation, and ourselves individually against these various churches, because all churches are a mixture of these. Where we have need of rebuke, well, we are to receive that rebuke and repent. Where there is a commendation, we are to praise God for it, and to thank him for the work of the Spirit that has done these things. And above all, we are to never lose sight of the fact that it is King Jesus, who is King of the Church, who walks among us, who walks among the candlesticks, who walks among us even this night and is looking and observing. And we understand that they, we cannot hide anything from his eyes, that we are open to him, uh, the one in which we will have to do. So we remember these things as we come to each of these churches. And last time we considered the church of Philadelphia. And we remembered it was one of the only two churches that did not receive any rebukes from our Lord Jesus Christ, only commendation. That church as we saw it, had a little strength. It was not mighty in itself. There was no show of power in it. Um, the minister and its people did not see themselves as anything grand. Nobody. There weren't thousands of people coming to hear the minister preach. The congregation was likely very small, and so on. Uh, but Christ said, you have to realize if you have a little strength, I have all strength. And he said that when I open a door for the sake of the gospel, no man can shut it. Not because you have a ton of strength, because you have none, but because no man can contend against me, such that no man, no enemy, not Satan himself, can close a door that the Lord has opened for the sake of the gospel. And so the idea is that we glory in our infirmities and we look to Christ for everything that we need strength for, Um, Jesus Christ being the strength of his people. Well, tonight we come to the Church of Laodicea, this last of the seven letters. Now, for some background, the city of Laodicea was in the Lycus Valley, a valley which contained three cities. One of those cities you know very well, which is Colossae, um, only a few miles, really, from Laodicea. Joining with those two cities was a third, Hierapolis. Now, there are several features of Laodicea and the Lycus Valley that are alluded here in this epistle. Um, Laodicea was rich. It was a banking center. In fact, it was so wealthy when an earthquake struck it, the Roman historian Tacitus said that they refused any um, aid from Rome, that they themselves could rebuild with uh, their great and tremendous wealth. Second, it was acknowledged as a center for medicine. It was renowned for them. In the first century, in fact, so in this context, there was a renowned ophthalmologist named Demosthenes who practiced there. So they were known for the healing of the eyes. And the city as well was known for the manufacture of various medicinal salves. Uh, They were famous, I I believe, for an uh, ear salve, especially. Though Christ, of course, here speaks of an eye salve. The surrounding cities in the Lycus Valley, they had good water supply. Uh, Hierapolis had hot springs and Colossae had cold, refreshing waters from streams. Um, Laodicea, though she was rich materially, had a poor water supply. And she had to bring in water via an aqueduct, so you understand some of what Christ is saying here. This is an affluent city, medicinal resources, but it had no life-giving waters at all. It had to be brought in. And so you can see the imagery that Christ is bringing forth. So that's its location. What about the church that was planted there? Um, Well, as I've already said, sad to say, it is one of two churches that received no commendation from the Lord. Uh, It joins Sardis for that uh, dishonor. Uh, Christ calls the church, as you're well aware, a lukewarm church. He said it was neither hot nor cold, and worse than that, perhaps, they were deluded, which is actually a marker of spiritual lukewarmness. They thought of themselves as prosperous spiritually, um, that they were fine, that they were well, but they were really wretched, naked, and blind. And Christ here says you have to see yourself clearly. Uh, this is what we will consider a little later. One of the worst problems of the lukewarm soul is they think they're just fine with the Lord. And that's the danger, right? He here exposes the danger of the lukewarm, that they don't see they are actually headed to hell. And that's the terrible, terrible nature of being lukewarm, that all is not right with our soul, though we think it is, because we don't have true union and communion with Jesus Christ, though we think we do. They had a form of godliness, as the Apostle would say, but denied the power thereof. They're oblivious that their veneer of religion cannot save them, having that outward show of religion, being satisfied with what they think they have of Christ, which they really do not. And Christ's warning is, if they remained lukewarm, he would spew them out of his mouth, uh, headed to hell, lest they repent. This letter is a warning to the lukewarm to turn away from lukewarmness. It's not, as long as the lukewarm hear this word and would repent of this of uh, uh, their terrible state, this is not a damning, damning word, but it will be if it goes unheeded. Christ is very kind to give this warning to those who hear this word and are lukewarm. They receive from the Lord a word of grace. Repent. Repent of your lukewarmness and I will come into your heart. Isn't that the beautiful promise here? I will come in and bring the fire of true religion with me. And I will commune with you, and you will have what you really need. And so with that, our theme tonight is a lukewarm church. Lukewarm church, three heads, first rebuke, second counsel, third promise. First rebuke. As in the other epistles, Jesus first introduces him to the church, so that we would know who it is that speaks to us. Verse 14. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, Christ is called the Amen hearing. I trust you know that word very well, brethren. It uh, is a Hebrew word originally. It means an acknowledgment or confirmation of the truth. Which is why when we pray according to the will of God, we say Amen. We acknowledge that these things are our desire, these things are according to the will of God. And so what we find here is Jesus himself is the confirmation of the truth of God's word. You know 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him what? Amen. Yes. Unto the glory of God by us. You know, it's as though you take this Bible, right? And you say, Christ is the Amen, right? He is the Amen. Christ, the person of Christ, is the validation of the truth, the confirmation of the truth of God's word. All the promises, all from Genesis to Revelation, is all of him. Second, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Christ is the faithful and true witness of God's word. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. John 18, 37. Uh, those in Christ, his sheep. Like, Why is it that we receive this as the word of God, the truth? Because we are of Christ. We have, he has come to us and he has shown us that he is the faithful and true witness. Such that we go and we say this Bible is truth to somebody else and uh, they're no smarter than us, we're no smarter than them. And they say absolutely not. Whereas to us it has been granted to believe that his word is truth. Lastly, he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now as you're probably aware, this is a verse cultists use to claim the Son of God is created and is not uncreated God. But this text actually has nothing to do with Christ being created. Uh, The word translated beginning is arche, which means power or dominion. Uh, It can signify ruler, it can also signify source of, which is the sense of the authorized version. Uh, When it says that he is the beginning, it means he is the source of the creation. That's what we read this in Colossians 1, 16 through 18. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, arche, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now I think it's very important that we understand the context there too. Colossae is right next door to Laodicea, isn't it? The Laodiceans would actually have read this, and we know this for certain because the Colossians were specifically told to share their epistle with the Laodiceans, Colossians 4.16, Paul's final instructions, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea there too. Uh, swap we don't have that was obviously not an inspired word that original epistle to laodicea we don't know what's in it but we do know that the uh, laodiceans received the inspired word of god from colossians and so they would have been very familiar with what christ's introduction is here Um, christ already said something they knew of him being the source of the creation and it's beautiful boys and girls how the bible works together like that right well after his introduction verse 15 christ rebukes the congregation I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou were cold or hot. Now, let's not forget, he knows all our works. He knows absolutely everything that we do. But more than that, he knows what motivates what we do. Right? He cuts right through the works themselves to see the source. Why do we do the things that we do? Right? This is the thing. The hip, hip, we look at a hypocrite. And we don't know necessarily why they do what they do, but Christ surely does. He cuts right to the heart, doesn't he? Uh, He sees whether or not what we do is out of a true zeal and love for him, or it's just a show of religion. It's just putting on a good face when we come to church. It's just saying the right things when we meet a Christian neighbor or friend. It's showing up at the right times maybe sometimes, um, but he sees that even when we do those things, we don't necessarily have Um, ourselves, uh, a zeal for the Lord. He said that these uh, people were neither cold nor hot. And in that he means their spiritual temperature, of course. Um, They're not cold and they're not hot. They're not cold, meaning they're not openly profane and ungodly. And they're people you see, clearly, you know, they give you the cold shoulder, right? We talk about that as well. You can see they give Christ the cold shoulder. No, the Laodiceans profess the true religion. They profess they are Christians, They did not say they're unbelievers, so they were not cold. On the other hand, they were not hot, meaning they did not have a true zeal for the Lord. They didn't really have union and communion with Christ. There's no warmth for him. They went through the motions of religion, but they did not have heart religion. They didn't have experiential religion. They didn't really love him as their desire and as their beloved. Uh, Christ was not first. He did not have the preeminence among them. They maybe sought to follow the commandments of God at times, but they didn't do it out of love. They didn't do it out of zeal. They had no care for him. They had that form of godliness that denies the power thereof. They could memorize their catechism. They knew their confession. But they didn't do it for Christ's sake. They had doctrine, but not according to godliness. And Christ said, you can observe this from all their works. You know, This is that subtle form of hypocrisy. This is the most deadly form of hypocrisy, isn't it? Just a mere identification with Christ, but no true possession of Christ in mind and heart, because if we truly did have Christ, how would that leave us unaffected? So the Lord calls them lukewarm in verse 16, neither cold nor hot. And he teaches you how terrible, and let's not forget this, let's look at the economy that Christ lays out for us of every soul. He says, I would, I would thou wert cold or hot. Being lukewarm is worse than being indifferent to Christ and saying, you know, I, I don't want Christ. Uh, it's worse than being outright, think of this, rebellious to Christ in a way. Not that being cold is the Lord's desire for you. What you have to understand is he sets how terrible being lukewarm is. Because we, I think we all know how bad it is to be cold for the Lord. Here's Christ's economy, in other words. Hot, which is desirous. Cold, and then lukewarm. The bottom shelf, the worst part. He says, this is how dreadful it is. Not, again, children, to say there's any commendation for being cold. But because being lukewarm is worse. He he shocks you. He means to shock you out of your spiritual lethargy. So that you would see how terrible it is to not have a care for the Lord and to be called a Christian. You know, those who are cold and open and honest about their stand, you know, it is almost far better, as we think on recent history here in this congregation, on Friday, right, a couple weeks ago, for that woman who openly said, I would rather be in hell than heaven. It was far better for her than... All those Christians that we meet that say, "Yes, I'm a Christian." Where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Where do you worship the Lord? I don't worship the Lord. Do you read your Bible? No, I don't read my Bible. Who will be who will get it worse on judgment day? I think we don't recognize it rightly. There's more hope for that woman in a sense for eternity than for those who are lukewarm. Better that those better than those, right? She's going to have it better than those. I was thinking about this it may be one of our texts this Lord's day. Isaiah 43, 22. But thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. What a thing it is to be weary of the Lord and have no works to be shown as the fruit of our faith. Better to hear, better than to hear in Matthew 15, 8, uh, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. This is the lukewarm professor, isn't it? Their heart is nowhere for Christ. Maybe I go, why are they lukewarm? Well, maybe I'm not associated with the church as a kind of social organism. Maybe I need to be part of the church for social standing. Maybe my family, children, are all Christians. And, you know, I don't want to not be a Christian, because my family is all Christian. That (coughs) would put me at um, odds with my family. No, you follow Christ for Christ's own sake. Right? What will the Lord do with the lukewarm? Verse 16 says, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now there's obviously, I think you have experience here with drinking different temperature waters. Right? Hardly anybody says, you know what I want today, some lukewarm water. Uh, you either want cold refreshing water or something hot right, to the taste. Nobody wants lukewarm water. It's generally distasteful. You spew it or spit it out of your mouth. And that's what Christ is saying here. And you think on this, lukewarm Christians are distasteful to him. Absolutely revolting to him. And that's how he puts it. I don't want you in my mouth. Get out. Right? This is the idea. And you think of in those days, also lukewarm water is dangerous. Bacteria grows in lukewarm water. In fact, even today, they'll tell you to put, if you have a, a tank water heater, to have it at a certain temperature, lest you have um, the bacteria that causes Legionnaire's disease, I believe, what grows in a lukewarm kind of water in the, the water heater. And so this is gross water. It is dangerous water. It is disgusting water. And you yourself would spew it out of your own mouth. And I think you notice this with those who are lukewarm in the church. You know, they, they show up for a time. How does Christ spew them out? Well, suddenly you notice they're, they're missing after a little while. They're Here and there, they come regularly for a while, then they're not there very much. Um, maybe they just disappear when there is... Uh, COVID was a great example of this, right? Churches shut down, everybody goes um, and does online church. At least a lot of churches did that. And then they reopened, where did the people go? Christ said, spewed them out of his mouth. They don't return because they were lukewarm. Uh, you'll notice this in the church. Even some people who seem hot for the Lord one day, he sees right through it all, right? If it's just an external kind of um, enthusiasm and it wasn't really in the heart, and one day they're just not there and you wonder, where, where did Joe go? Where did Jane go? Um, but Christ had spewed them out of their mouth, which is why it is dangerous, brethren, if we are lukewarm. Absolutely terrifying. Christ says, stop halting between two opinions, get off the fence. Be cold or be hot. Stop making a show. Uh, Cannot have my name on you without living for me. Faith without works is dead, and so on and so forth. And this is the problem of the lukewarm, as I alluded to in the intro. They are self-deceived. They are self-deceived. Verse 17 says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think of this is a spiritual state more than it has anything to do with wealth. Though, of course, we know what the Lord says about a rich man um, entering the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we sometimes see that, I think, when we go door to door in our neighborhood, don't we? But this is not really about those who have material wealth, but those who think that they are spiritually satisfied. Right? This is the problem of the lukewarm. Um, they feel like they have enough of Christ. Uh, they're satisfied with where they're at. And this is what the lukewarm person's problem is. Um, in today's parlance, you see it all over like social media. Right? Hashtag blessed. This is a person who thinks that they've got it all, right? and they have nothing else in need. They're filled with their good things. But what does Christ say, are they? No, they're deceived. They're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They are presumptuous over their spiritual state. See, that's the, that's really going to be one of the barometers for you. Are you satisfied with your spiritual state? Or do you have a sense that there's more of Christ to have? That there's more uh, holiness to pursue? That there's more of Christ, wherever he is in the ordinances, I must go and have him more and more and more, and I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. Uh, in a sense, the Christian is absolutely satisfied with the Lord. They rest in the Lord. But in another sense... They are constantly pursuing the Lord because they know there is more of him and they're not happy with where they're at in a sense because they know the excellencies of Christ and they see more of their own sinfulness in themselves and they see that there is more of Christ to behold and to know and there's more uh, good works that he has prepared from before the foundation of the uh, world to pursue and so they're just not happy. Those who think they have gone far enough with Christ. You know, we talked about on the Lord's Day evening, the spiritual minimalism, right? Where we feel like, what's the least I can do to be a Christian? That is the lukewarm professor. The the one who has zeal for Christ never says we are comfortable with our attainment of him. Think of the Apostle Paul, right? You would say this side of heaven, perhaps the man that went as far as any mortal uh, man can go with the Lord. An apostle who says, I have not yet attained. I am not yet perfect. There is more of Christ. There is more of the Lord to know. Which of course makes sense because we'll be saying that for eternity, won't we? So how should we not say that here on this side of glory? One of the things that will mark you out as lukewarm is you just being self satisfied you ought to all be pushed, my, me too, further into holiness and living lives separated unto Christ. We ought to have the sense we have a further need for sanctification. Again, the Christian is restless in these things. Knowing we have more to go, we mourn over our sin, we desire further growth in holiness. We do spiritual exercises, because, not because we have to in the morning or in the evening, but because we want to, and we want to grow in the Lord. We sense we have more we can do for good, for God and neighbor. And this is their joy. This is not their chore. There's no sense, right, that, um, well, I guess I have enough of Christ. And I'll see him in heaven. Well, if you think that, you may not actually, he says. I will spew you out of my mouth. It could never be for these, um, take him or leave him. Whenever there's an opportunity to take Christ, they take him. Christ has first place. Christ has the preeminence, as in Colossians. You know, you and I, absolutely, brethren, we will struggle here and there. Not saying that we would be perfect in these things, but there ought to be a desire in our life to know more of Christ. Wouldn't there be something wrong with us if there wasn't? There ought to always be a tendency and movement towards him. And I would just say, don't settle for anything less, brethren, lest you be spewed out of his mouth. Prioritize him in your life, Put away the world, even as uh, some of our men have prayed tonight. Run away from sin. Have Christ be first. You know, some Christians, it is like pulling teeth to have them do anything spiritual. You can't get them to come to worship. They even come into a church and join a church. They have a hard time getting to church. Um, They don't want to do spiritual exercises. They don't want to pray. But how easy is it for them to veg at the television, Or how easy it is for them to meet their friends at the bar. These are things that tell us whether we are lukewarm. Or we have a zeal for the Lord. How would we measure our lives in these things? Is it easy to put away the Lord? Is it easy to take up the world? Is it easy to have no thought of God the whole day? That's a danger. And I couldn't help but think here. There's a special warning here for ministers. The minister of Laodicea is directly addressed. You know, the idea that a minister or an elder has arrived is anathema to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be satisfied with even the state of the ministry that has been entrusted to these uh, is lukewarmness. There's always more to do for the Lord's sake. You think now we have it such that there are men who are satisfied with their 15 minute homily every week, then they're on the golf course, aren't they? And they're hobnobbing with everyone, all manner of worldliness, while never pleading for souls, never visiting their people, not preaching the word as they ought. These, Christ says, he will spew out of his mouth. And that, I think, affects the state of the church as a whole, doesn't it? If the ministers and elders of the church are lukewarm, how do the people have any hope? So this word first comes to the ministers and elders of the churches. We are must be fervent men for the Lord or else the congregation will not be. Well, with that then, let's consider counsel as our next hand. Verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. Now Christ says here, buy true riches. By the true riches. You know, you have sought... Those things that are not riches but are dung, seek the true riches and I will give them to you. Buy them from me, they come from me. In fact, we don't have time to develop this out tonight, but this is Christ Himself that they're counseled to buy. Take me, the gold tried with fire, as Christ has been tried. Take me, so I may robe you with my righteousness. Every spiritual blessing, everything, the balm of Gilead that can open our eyes. They are to take of Christ. You are to take of Christ. Buy of me. He is the pearl of great price. You need me. I can clothe your unrighteousness. Take away your shame from you. You need me. Your nakedness I can erase. I can cover all of your filth. I can anoint you so you can see that you might say, but the former blind man, as you look back on your life and all that lukewarmness, you can say, whereas I was once blind, now I see what I once was. And I can see though I, I I profess Christ, I never once possessed Christ. The problem of the lukewarm is you may not actually have him and you do not see it, so you're told to buy of him. Sinners, come and buy of him. Now you say, okay, I need Christ. The Lord is convicting me of it. But what can I buy Christ with? I have nothing to buy him with. What does the sinner have that he may buy of Christ? What would the Great pearl of price except for himself. How can I buy of him? Well, the price you supply is actually taught in the Bible as well, in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk. Here it is. Buy riches. What is the price? Without money and without price. You see, Christ says, buy of me to communicate to you he is something worthy of having. You know, often we don't, children, uh, esteem things we get for free, do we? Right? And so he's trying to say, no, I'm not like something unvaluable. So I'm using this figure of speech by, of me. But what is the price? Absolutely nothing. All you do is you come to him and you take. When you see yourself destitute of righteousness, you will come and take Christ without price. And then... Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me and eat, eat that which is good and let your soul delight in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. Come and take Christ without price, he says. You can have all the riches. Come and buy of me. Take me. Take a true interest in me. You know, you might, in fact, have true faith, but there's a sense of lukewarmness in your soul. Why is it? Because you're constantly pushing Christ away, aren't you? He is constantly saying in the word of God, come and buy of me, take me, love me, cleave to me as your life, ever set me before you. And you've been pushing and pushing him away whenever there is that fork in the road between cleaving unto the Lord and cleaving unto the world or unto sin. And he says, no, Come and buy of me. Take me. So even if you have a true interest in Christ, he says, here I am, free for the taking. So take me, and I will cure all that is in uh, your soul. Would you you esteem the reproaches of myself? Greater reward than the fleeting pleasure of sin. Would you live for me? Die to self. And he says, all of this, all of this removal of your lukewarmness, you're not going to do it yourself. Just ask. And I will give you. Or are you afraid of even asking? You know, I think that's the trouble, isn't it? You see Christ set before you, and you see your own lukewarmness, perhaps, and you say, I don't want to take Christ, because I know it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me the world. It's going to cost me myself. I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to get rid of a certain sin or something else. My time is going to have to go to the Lord. You see what a terrible thing lukewarmness is. It really does show you where you stand. So beloved, take of Christ. And uh, if you are at Christ's, keep the fire of religion ever burning. Don't let it cool. Keep the fire of the Holy Ghost burning day and night. Have a care and concern for the Lord. As we read in Titus 2 on the Lord's Day, that the grace of God teaches us Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. And what's the, what's the description of us? Zealous of good works. <clears throat> That's what the grace of God in Jesus Christ makes us not lukewarm. There is nothing lukewarm about that. You know, if this text, though, has stung or convicted you, I think you need to listen to the kindness of the Lord in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. You know, this is the goodness of God, isn't it? Like he gives you this word, not because he wants to squash you like a bug, but because he loves you. And he wants to see you turn from your lukewarmness. He has no desire, beloved of God, to spew out of his mouth. Just turn to him. Repent. This means repent in a, of a truth. Don't um, have worldly sorrow over these things. Have a godly sorrow. I haven't pursued the Lord Jesus as I ought to. I've been convicted and stung. Be zealous and repent. That's the response don't be lukewarm anymore. Turn away by God's grace to a vibrant, warm and lively faith, full of grace and life, loving the things of God, hating sin, glorying in good works, embracing worship, communing with Christ in all of the ordinances, denying worldliness and ungodliness, putting God first through Jesus Christ. God first in everything. A great zeal. Why should these false professors of religion, you think of the uh, Islamic court, have such a zeal for an idol, while we cannot have zeal for the true God who is gracious? What a thing it is when I have seen in public these men getting their prayer carpets out several times a day to go and bow down to an idol who is demonic when Christians have no zeal for he who has loved them and given himself for them. Isn't that a great offense to God? And What a a striking thing it may be on the day of judgment to so many lukewarm to say, here, these are going to enjoy hell for not turning to the Lord for sure. But you know what? They were at least zealous for their God. Well, those who do repent and hear the love of the Lord will receive promises our final heading. Verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he... With me. You know, again, this is the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And I think this is our problem, is that we cannot be zealous for such a, a Savior as this. That a heart isn't warned to hear of these wonderful promises. He's not these false gods, these false religions who say, Okay, well now you need to go and make ten pilgrimages to Mecca. You need to go do this, you need to go do that. He says what? Open the door of your heart. Open the door of your heart and I will come in. This hearing of the word is Christ knocking at the door. The door is your heart, as I've said. The knocking comes through the word of God, which comes to you now. He is speaking to you in it. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? He is speaking to us all tonight. Do you hear his voice? Will you hear his voice? And will you open the door of the heart? And we know that if the door be opened, the beauty is it will be Christ who has first unlatched it, isn't it? And the thing is, when faith apprehends Christ as he opens the door, he opens sort of the deadbolt of our heart. What faith does is it completes its union with Christ as it opens the door that he has unlatched. And it lets him in, such that faith completes our union with Christ. Um, and it is exercised by us to receive him, to close with him. You know, you think about how these things work together. You have Acts 16.14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple to the city of the city of Thyatira, uh, which we've talked about before, which worshiped God heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. You know, the Lord, again, unbolts the deadbolt of our heart. Uh, we hear him then knocking, and then we open the door. And that's how those things work, such that it is truly us who receive the Lord, but he does the work of smashing the the stony hardness of our heart, unbolting it, so to speak. That's how God's sovereignty over the door of our heart works, but we truly do ourselves embrace him by faith. You know, you think of the Song of Solomon 5. I, I won't turn there due to time, but let me read it for you. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels was moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. This is how it works. Christ comes to the door. We hear him. He opens our eyes. He opens our heart. And then we open the door to him and we receive him. And he promises, if we would, he will sup with us and we with him. We just did that at the communion table, didn't we? But he promises us communion with himself. And here is perhaps a marker of where you are, beloved. If that doesn't interest you, if that isn't heartwarming to you, perhaps you might have to say, I am lukewarm. This is the Christian's great interest, isn't it? To have this kind of communion with the Lord. He promises you, think of this, I, God in the flesh, will come to you. And if you say, what's on TV now? I, I would have to fear for you. Right? Right? How can you be lukewarm in the face of that? How can you say when God says, I will come to you, I will dine with you, I will sup with you, I will be very close to you, I will be near and dear to you, and you say, what's on Facebook? I think you understand the problem, don't you? And this is the state of self-deception so many of us are in. And this is what he's calling us to repent of. Again, see the invitation and see the blessing of being hot for the Lord and not be lukewarm. He is, opening, uh, he is knocking on the door in so many places, in so many ways, to the Christian. Whether it's in public worship, he says, open the door. Whether it is in your private secret place, where you are rarely in if you are lukewarm, he says, open the door and I will come to you there. In good works, he says, open the door and I will meet you. Who do you walk with? It is God who walks with you in good works. He says, I have given you opportunities for growth in grace. Open the door and I will come in. And what is the blessing? I will commune with you. And then finally in verse 21, he says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down uh, with my father in his throne. Uh, Again, I think it's the lukewarm who reads something like this and says, Hmm, interesting. Whereas the one who is hot for the Lord says, I am astonished. I will sit in Christ's throne with him. Have you no sense of what that is, that he's promising us? It's unbelievable to say that you will share in Christ's throne in some manner. That we will reign as kings with him, as princes and of God. That's a remarkable promise, but it's given more than once in the Bible to the church of Thyatira, to those who overcome. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I've received my father. First Corinthians six three know ye not that we shall judge angels. This is the reward for overcoming to the end. This is the pattern laid out by your Saviour. He says, You overcome. As I overcame, and I ascended to my th- uh, father uh, in his throne. And so we will share, as just as we, he died and was resurrected, ascended to God's right hand, to his throne, he is saying, you will die, you will be resurrected, you will come to me, and you will be seated with me in my throne. It's a remarkable, remarkable promise. But what is the thing, what is the duty here, Overcome. Overcome. The Christian life is a life of cross-bearing and overcoming. A denial of your flesh, not living for the world, not countenancing sin. To be zealous, to live for Christ, to be hot for him, uh, who himself is the one who makes you overcome. He says, buy of me what you need to overcome. Isn't that the thing? We don't overcome in our own strength. He's constantly saying, buy of me, I will give you the supply, I will give you the strength, so that you can overcome and I will seat you with me, next to me, my dear one. This is a gracious promise to the chief of sinners, isn't it? You just think of how grace is heaped upon grace for us, beloved. You think on the thief on the cross, right? Because we just had communion. This was our communion text. A vile man, a malefactor, a horrible, horrid man, touched by the grace of God, renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ saved to the uttermost from all of his sin, would be more than we could possibly dream for. And he says to that man, I will seat you next to me. What a complete, completely unbelievable promise is given to the vilest of men. And we say, what a savior is this? And is it right for us to be lukewarm to such as this? It would be a great evil, isn't it? Well, yet we are often lukewarm and this is the stubbornness of our flesh to give up the world and sin for him. May it not be for you and me and if he is rebuked, you see that he has rebuked you in love. Let us wrestle with the spirit, with our spiritual lethargy and overcome it by his grace that one day we would be where he is in glory. Amen. May God help you and me do so. Let us the Lord with praise. Let's sing Psalm 87. I believe the tune is Effingham, Psalm 87. (laughs) Upon the hills of holiness he, his foundation sets. God more than Jacob's dwellings all delights in Zion's gates. Things glorious are said of thee, thou city of the Lord. Rahab and Babelite to those uh, that know me will record. Behold, even Tyrus and with it the land of Palestine. And likewise Ethiopia, this man was born therein. And it of Sion shall be said, This man and that man there was born, and he that is most high himself shall establish her. When God the people writes, he'll count that this man born was there. There be that sing and play, and all my wellsprings in thee are. will sing this psalm to the tune of Effingham. La 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 Jesus Christ, thou hast knocked on the door of our heart this night, O Lord, would you unbolt the, the door of our heart, for it is very hard, would you unbolt the door of our heart that we, in response, may open it to the Lord, that we would behold the glory of the Lord in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would see his loveliness, his radiance, that we would invite him in to our heart, that he would dwell with us and we with him, and that we would know the joy of further union and communion with him, that our heart would ever be warmed towards our great God and Savior, and that we would find him so entirely um, our soul's delight, that we would truly say that there is none in the earth that we desire beside him. Oh, Father, we are often very lukewarm towards your own Son, as you know. And so, Father, we are thankful to know that we overcome not by our own strength, but instead by simply asking that you would give us Christ. Would you give us your only begotten Son that is so beloved that you gave to the world? And we want now to buy without price, that we would take all of Christ and not just some of Christ, that we would give Christ our whole heart and not reserve anything from him. And Lord, this is often a struggle even for those of us with a true saving interest in him. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would cause us to repent as we have received rebuke after rebuke undoubtedly in the word, that we would see Ah, this is the love of God to us. And we would turn from our evil ways and turn to the Lord and find a greater blessedness than we could ever know in the world and with sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this for this our people here tonight and those who are uh, with us online. Uh, give us a greater zeal for the Lord, that we would see nothing but Christ all the days of our life, such that when we go to uh, meet him, uh, just our location has changed, but not really our heart. Uh, we just have a fullness of what our heart has had here. Uh, bless us now as we uh, depart from here, filling us with this good word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, receive now the grace, uh, the blessing of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.